and it's our pleasure to speak to you from the pulpit at least once a year about green sanctuary sorts of things. I want to show you the book Justice on Earth. It's the EU Common Read for this year. And we want to talk to you about some of our reflections on this book this year. When I picked up the book Justice on Earth at General Assembly, knowing that it was the Green Sanctuary Committee, or I'm not sorry, I'm sorry, it's the Unitarian Universalist Common Read for 2019, I was eager to read it, given my belief that climate change is the biggest threat our children and grandchildren face. In my first pass through the book, I was profoundly disappointed. I was looking for stories on how to reduce carbon dioxide in the air. That's not what I got. Then I reread the title, Justice on Earth. This book is focused on not on justice for the earth. It is focused on people of faith working on the intersections of race, class, and the environment to create justice on earth. I had to step back and look at my own efforts to be a good steward of the earth. When I got involved with the board at this church, I stepped away from working with Citizens Climate Lobby. Now I give money every month to that endeavor because I believe Citizens Climate Lobby's very focused proposal to put a fee on carbon has the best chance of limiting of limiting the burning of fossil fuels. If we can't reverse the damage we are doing to our atmosphere, nothing else will matter. After reading the book, I looked at my work with Audubon. This work also seems to take care of the earth, not work for justice on earth. Still, if no one cares for the earth, what do we have? We at this church are proud of our choices to live green. We heat our church with geothermal and solar energy. We drive electric and hybrid cars. Again, these choices are protecting the earth. Justice on earth invites us into the work of making sure that each person and being on earth is treated with value. This book is based on Unitarian principles. Unitarian principles that mark the inherent worth and dignity of every person and lift up respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. For me, these principles run counter to the biblical permission to take from the land. I want to read two powerful verses from the New Oxford Annotated Bible of 2010. As we listen to the following verses from Genesis, let us be reminded that this is the basic logic that led to slavery and segregation in the Americas. Colonization and apartheid in Africa and the rule of white supremacy throughout the world. 
This passage is the same one that leads to the exploitation of animals and the ravaging of nature. As these verses are read, think about the fact that people of color have historically been associated with nature and animals as a justification for abuse, objectification, and mistreatment. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on this earth. Fortunately, Unitarians and some other denominations as well are moving to a different place of religious understanding. I agree with one of the writers, Shamira Shantu Riley, who says, if the planet as a whole is to survive, we must all begin to see ourselves as interconnected with non-human nature and one another. This book reminds us to build an alternative vision of the world, one that is environmentally sustainable and socially just. Hello, my name is Marge Willicke. I'm also a member of the Green Sanctuary Committee. Jennifer Nordstrom, an editor of Justice on Earth, wrote one of the 12 essays for this book. In her essay, she identifies two major resources for environmental justice work. One is intersectionality, and two, faith. Later, Becky will talk about spiritual practice and faith. I will focus my remarks on intersectionality. If you have read or heard the term intersectionality, I am not surprised. It's been around for 30 years. The term was coined by Kimberley Williams Crenshaw in 1989 to describe the ways societal patterns of power and oppression intersect with one another. With her training as an attorney, she draws on court cases to illustrate her thesis. I will describe one such case. Emma was an African-American woman who applied for a job at a local car manufacturing plant. She was not hired. Emma believed she had been the victim of double discrimination based on race and gender. So she filed a claim. Her case was heard by a judge who tossed it out of court. His reasoning was that the company was hiring some African-American men. Therefore, there was no race discrimination. Also, the company was hiring some white women. Therefore, there was no gender discrimination. The judge claimed that if he ruled the case had merit, 
Emma would receive unfair preferential treatment. This is the case that caused Kimberlé Crenshaw to begin thinking about this problem without a name. That realization inspired her to coin the term intersectionality. Why does this term resonate with me? I'll tell you. In my adult life, I have adopted critical worldwide causes to help focus my volunteer efforts. Perhaps some of you have done that too. The first major cause I adopted was overpopulation. So in the 1960s, I joined ZPG, that's zero population growth, and worked to spread the message. While I never abandoned overpopulation as an important issue, gradually I transitioned to the nuclear threat as my issue of choice. Next, my attention turned to the deteriorating environment and then to social justice issues. I didn't at that time think much about the relationship among these issues. I was thinking about separate causes that often compete with one another for both attention and resources. It won't be hard for you to guess what my current issue of choice is. Yes, it is the threat climate change poses for planet Earth, all wildlife, and for all humans those living now and those yet to be born. No one is exempt from the consequences. We know that frontline communities are impacted first and frequently suffer the most. In any country, the poor, the children, the elderly, that is those with less power, are especially vulnerable. Internationally, low-lying nations are in danger of being submerged completely. Climate change is becoming a more significant driver of mitigation, migration and displacement. These are both environmental and social justice issues. We need an intersectional approach as we tackle these problems. We're the primary cause of climate change, and we must be part of the solution. Good morning, I'm Rachel Herple. I'm a member of the Green Sanctuary Committee. What do you think of when I say the word water? Because of recent events, you might think of flooding or disaster, other times you may think of health, hydration, drinking water, and other times I hope you think of fun. I think fun is appropriate. <laughs> water is recreation or at least part of something that brings you happiness. Whatever water means to you, to me it's work. I've worked on water issues all my adult life. So when I read the chapter on water in the book Justice on Earth, it was familiar to me. It's the story of a congregation in Charleston, West Virginia, and how they responded to local contamination and flooding events. Given recent flooding, one paragraph in particular resonated with me. It reads, 
One of the greatest lessons from these experiences is that water everywhere is at risk, that everyone is downstream from something, and nearly everyone is at potential risk from flooding. According to a National Climate Assessment report cited in USA Today in August 2016, heavy rain events increased by 71% between 1958 and 2013. Increases are greatest in the Northeast and Midwest. However, increases in extreme water events are projected for all U.S. regions. Like most people prior to these events, the Charleston congregation didn't give water as a resource much thought. Like air and the earth itself, water is a resource that most people take for granted. Water is a part of our infrastructure. Water is, like electricity and plumbing and food, these are basic things that we really don't want to think a lot about on a daily basis until they're threatened or gone. For many years, I worked with the Groundwater Foundation, and our unofficial logo or motto was, you cannot love what you do not know. It's especially challenging to love a hidden resource, an aquifer that is hugely important to everything we do in Nebraska, but that you, do, you cannot see. You do see it all the time, but only when it feeds rivers and streams, and you have these gorgeous base flows within streams, or it's pumped out of the ground to feed things like people and crops and cattle. I think today water as a resource gets much, much more attention. I think it's because water is associated with storms and thought to be an indicator when things are going bad. The effects of climate change will be felt in many ways, but one is in how water moves and is available for human use. Whether extremes, whether drought or flood, hail or tornado, these things are impacting how we feel about water. And because I do this on a daily basis, I see many, many videos about water in crisis. <laughs> um, things are going very, very wrong, and I think we have heard Whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting over. How many have heard that <laughs> a little, little ditty? Uh, but then guess what the title of the book chapter is? Water unites us. Surprise? I'm not. Because to address any kind of water issue, it is fundamentally a people issue. It is the people drinking the water, people managing the floodplain. It's the people who care about wetlands and wildlife habitat. Why do they care about these things and why should we care that they care? And on what scale? Is it the neighborhood scale, the watershed scale, the river basin scale, the global scale? It's simply taking the time to listen, learn, plan, and act. My point in saying all this is that I don't think of water in terms of crisis or tragedy. It just is. It's a reality to be managed as part of the natural and human systems as are we, and it's in our best interest to think ahead and try to manage it proactively. Yes, there are questions and costs. There are big, 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 big costs, and that's what I spend my time doing is talking a lot about money. <laughs> um, water management decisions generate conflict. Water is fought over, but again, from justice on earth. Water unites us. All water is one water, shape-shifting, as it goes on and on in its unending cycle. The local stream we gather by tonight unites us with all the waters of the world, 
and all the life of the world, for all life depends on water. And that is why this common everyday element on which our very lives depend is sacred. In our thankfulness for water, let us remember to honor, cherish, and care for it, for our own lives, for all life touched by water, and for those who come after us. Portions of Justice on Earth that resonated most deeply with me were the several essays that argued for the importance of sustained spiritual practice in our work for justice and the need for developing a bolder prophetic vision and speaking from a religious perspective. As many of you know, climate change is the justice issue of most profound importance to me and one to which I give a fair amount of my energy particularly through my involvement with Citizens Climate Lobby. But I have to admit that I get tired and sometimes sink into dis to despair, wondering if what I do is making any difference at all in the crisis that we face. While spending time in nature and digging in the dirt help, both of which I consider spiritual practice, I know that I must also spend time with meaningful words, particularly poetry, and space away from my routine life to remain on a somewhat even keel. And I don't do these things nearly often enough. Justice on Earth invites us to consider what place spiritual practice has in our lives. Spiritual practice defined as the things we do repeatedly with attention what we do with intention to ground us in something bigger than ourselves and help us cultivate the qualities we most want to see in our world. I invite you to spend a moment considering what you do or wish to do as a spiritual practice in this most expansive sense. And then there was this quote from Pamela Starr's essay, Transforming Unitarian Universalist Culture. Many of our congregations have led the way in their communities by purchasing renewable energy, replacing light bulbs, weatherizing buildings, and installing solar panels. These are important steps to demonstrate how to reduce carbon emissions, but while they are necessary, they are insufficient for exemplifying prophetic moral imagination. This is because they do not require us to change our relationships of privilege and power to other people. They do not require us to change our economic or political system. They hint at, but do not directly speak the language of morality. The essay also points out that our individual and congregational work on justice issues often does not differ in emphasis from that of our secular partners. Star challenges us to speak and act from a grounding in our faith. And I quote again, this means speaking and organizing from a place of hope rather than fear. It means making the pursuit of justice, not technical solutions, central to our vision and strategy. It we, means we need to organize and analyze situations differently than our secular counterparts. It means we do not treat those who oppose our viewpoint as enemies, but search for values that unite us. 
She goes on. It is imperative that we are comfortable and articulate when framing our concerns and solutions out of a profound sense of the sacredness of all life uh, or our respect for the dignity and worth of every individual of every threatened species. We can express our wonder and awe, our love of the mystery and complexity of the web of life, and our deep desire to protect the integrity of the natural world. We can talk about how the integrity of our soul and spirit is bound up with the well-being of others, other humans, and the more-than-human world. This chapter presents a real challenge to me. While our personal and congregational efforts are environmentally and, yes, morally grounded, church remodeling decisions, all those hybrids and EVs in the parking lot, and bikes, <laughs> more importantly, bikes, <laughs> our efforts to eat local, organic, and increasingly plant-based, all of these are necessary, but not at all sufficient. What does a prophetic vision look like? How do we help each other imagine that vision and work toward it? How do we reimagine an economic structure that has treated some of us very well? How do we build meaningful relationships across the, very, the many divisions beyond, and yes, even within our walls? How do we learn to listen with more empathy across those divides? How do we remember to both acknowledge and articulate that when our actions are grounded in our UU values, they have additional weight? I have tons of questions and next to no answers. I need you. We need each other. We need to remind each other to take that next small step toward understanding, renewed vision, and informed action. <laughs>